Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Podcast, presented by Canon Press. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Douglas Wilson. This is episode 311. 311. Good to have you with us. Uh, thanks for coming. So I want to talk uh, this time about a recent article that was written by Kevin DeYoung on the Moscow mood. He's uh, addressing the reasons why he thinks people are attracted to Moscow, why, why they're coming here. And his, um, his thesis, his theory is that people are attracted to the the mojo, the mojo or the vibe or the mood, and that the doctrinal issues are are not really front and center. They're uh, so people are attracted to the I don't, know, I don't know the swagger maybe, and he thinks that there are uh, reasons for that. He thinks that reasonable Christians can be attracted to that. DeYoung doesn't make the mistake that a lot of our critics make, which is the mistake of coming unhinged. When someone tries to paint someone in the blackest of colors, it is much more difficult for them to make their case, particularly when the people they're talking to are aware of some of what's going on. So anybody who has even a passing acquaintance with what's going on here in Moscow is going to know that the unhinged analysis is not correct. And so uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, begins by doing something I think really uh, quite reasonable, and that is that he acknowledges, he gives credit where credit's due. But because he gives credit where credit is due, uh, it sort of undermines his whole case. So he, he wants to say that, that I have done a number of good things and that I present a muscular, angular sort of Christianity without compromise and that uh, my family loves Christ, and my family loves me. And and when he gets that far, when he concedes that much, a lot of people who are looking at what's going on here are going to say, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's what we want. We want to stand for the faith. We don't want to trim or temporize. We don't want to compromise. And we don't want to alienate our families. We want to keep our kids we don't want clown world uh, kidnapping our kids. So what's the objection? Well, uh, DeYoung is concerned about some deeper spiritual roots that he thinks uh, are inconsistent with Christian virtue, and it ha has to do with uh, being in, in an adversarial relationship with other Christians and speaking in a polemical way that he thinks is unhealthy and so on. Now, he wrote that article. It made a big splash. A number of people online, responded to it in a number of different ways. Joe Rigney did, uh, Jared Longshore did, Toby Sumter did. And, uh, and then just this morning, as I'm recording uh, this, just this morning, I posted my response to it in a pretty hefty, long response. And if you want all, if you want to get into the weeds, I'd refer you to that. Okay. Probably the central thing I would want to talk about today has to do with one of his criticisms, just, just, simply, just simply one of them. He represents Moscow because we are in a polemical, belligerent stance toward clown world, that we have separated ourselves from other uh, Christian groups. We're, we've not uh, 
uh, been willing to network or lock arms with others and, and so on. So we're a hard splinter sectarian group that is too pure for any other conservative Christians. And this is one of those things, one of the, this is a criticism that is wide of the mark, and it's wide of the mark because it's the opposite of the, of the truth. For many years now, we have invited different Christian leaders from all over, and they are the ones that, with a handful of exceptions, they are the ones who refuse to have anything to do with us. So it's not us being fastidious and refusing to deal with um, other Christians. It goes the other way. So uh, we've had we've had numerous instances where we've invited someone and they don't come, or we invite someone and they agree to come, and then the thumbscrews are put to them behind the scene behind the scenes, and they cancel on us. They say, "No, I can't do that." There are other instances where I'm invited somewhere, and the thumbscrews are put on the poor organizer of the event, whoever that was, and then I'm uninvited. So for a long time, Big Eva has been a phrase that has been thrown around a lot. But basically, Big Eva has had us, our Moscow ministry and all the things we're doing, they've had us under an embargo for quite some time. And that embargo uh, included not mentioning us, not referring to us, not uh, giving us any access to the microphone and so on. Uh, This piece by Kevin DeYoung uh, signals, I think, at the very least, a change in strategy. And that that means that we've grown to the point where we're not going to, uh, we've grown to the point where we can't be ignored anymore. Enough people are coming our direction, enough people are citing us or paying attention to us, that it has to be addressed directly and straight up the middle. And Kevin DeYoung apparently drew the short straw. Always will be God. So continuing on with the podcast, episode 311, uh, we continue with our noble mission, which is the study of sin, the study of sin that we are calling hamartiology. The word this week is kakapoeo, kakapoeo, which is rendered as evil doing or to do evil. Kakos is the word for evil, and poeo is the, is the verb for make or do. And so the word taken together is to, to do evil or, to, uh, or a reference to evil doing. Uh, the first use of this word comes in the account of how the Lord healed the man with the withered hand. Both Mark and Luke tell this story, uh, I'll, and I'll cite both. In Mark 3, 4, it says, And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? or to do evil, okay, to save life or to kill. But they held their peace. And then in Luke, it says, Luke 6, 9, it says, Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? So the thing that's interesting about this uh, use of kakapoeo is that the Lord is teaching us by implication about the reality of sins of omission the reality of sins of omission. He contrasts doing good with doing evil. He uh, contrasts saving life with destroying life or saving life with killing life. But the actual choice before him was whether to heal the withered hand or not. The choice was not whether Jesus was going to give a command that would cause the, the man's other hand to wither. So Jesus, what is Jesus referring to here as, quote-unquote, doing evil? 
Well, in this instance, Jesus describes doing evil as it would have been doing nothing. If Jesus had just left the whole situation be and done nothing, according to him, he'd be doing evil. In other words, Jesus is teaching us that if he had passed this man by, refusing to heal his hand because it was on the Sabbath, this would have been tantamount to performing an evil action. Sins of omission are very much a real thing. So, withering the, other, the man's other hand and refusing to heal the one that was already withered are in the same category of evil doing. So, such omissions are a very real thing. If you are walking by someone's yard and you see a, a toddler in a wading pool who falls over and is going to drown, you can't just go on and say, I'm late for my appointment. I can't get involved. If you do that, uh, you didn't design to kill a toddler that day, but by, by means of a sin of omission, that's what you would do. So, Sins of omission are real sins, according to Scripture. Another use of this word is found in the epistle of 3 John. And here, the doing of evil is being used as a general category. It's a general category. 3 John, verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil, there's our, there's our verb, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. 3 John 11. So, don't do, don't do evil, do that which is good. If you are doing what is good, that's from God. If you do evil, you've not seen God. So it's a general category. Doing evil is inconsistent with a profession of a life for God or, or living for God. And Peter exhorts us to live in such a way as that we are persecuted for doing good and not for doing evil. And he says this in 1 Peter 3.17. He says, For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. So Peter is saying, if, you, if you're going to be mistreated, let, let the mistreatment come your way because of your performance of that which is good. You can't be a jerk or a criminal or an outlaw and then have the cops scoop you up and take you in and then say you're being persecuted. You're not being persecuted for righteousness' sake if the reason they arrested you was for drunk driving. Or you can't say that you were persecuted for righteousness' sake if the reason you were arrested was for embezzling. So Peter says, uh, if you're mistreated, make sure that the charge against you is false. If you're mistreated, the charge against you needs to be false. God don't never change. He's God. So, continuing on with episode 311 of the podcast, we come now to our standard book review section. The book I want to review uh, this time around is Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen. I've read it a number of times. It's a, it's a great pleasure. And I just this, time, this last time, I listened to it in my truck in bits and pieces, and I picked up an, a number of things that were of interest this time around. The whole setup of the novel is the sense of Eleanor and the sensibility of Marianne, the, the two sisters. One, one of them is just impetuous and passionate and had everything, but she was gifted and intelligent and smart and all of that, but she had no impulse control. She was a creature of her passions. And Eleanor, her sister, 
was cautious, conservative, careful. And this doesn't mean that she didn't feel things. It didn't it does not mean that she was emotionless. It simply meant that she had her emotions under control. And that was um that of course is the structure of the whole novel that everybody knows about. Right? Uh, okay, everybody knows Eleanor's the sensible one and Marianne is the impetuous uh, passionate one and uh, uh Marianne has her heart broken by a guy named Willoughby and uh Eleanor is in love with a guy who is engaged to somebody else and she has to stuff her feelings and keep herself under tight control. The thing I noticed this time through, and I would just draw it to your attention, is a couple of instances where Jane Austen is driving at the same point, and I don't think I'd noticed this uh, emphasis before. One is that um, the the girl's mother, Mrs. Dashwood, it's, it says is as emotional as Marianne is. In other words, the impetuous, passionate sister takes after her mother. She's the one who has her heart broken by this guy named Willoughby, but her mother was as much abandoned to her emotions as her daughter was. Eleanor was the sensible one, not just over against Marianne, but over against her mom. And in other words, Marianne came by it honestly, and she didn't have the preparation from her mother that she needed to have in order to deal with the kind of hard knocks that the world's going to deliver. The same point, the um, the need to learn how to govern your passions is um, Jane Austen has a delightful little scene where one of the children, there's a rowdy, uh, very rowdy child involved, in, and she actually get, accidentally gets a, uh, I forget if it's a he or a she. Anyway, the child gets a uh, pinprick, a little, a slight little glancing wound and comes absolutely unstuck. And the the adults around her rally around in order to make it all better and try to bribe and fix and ameliorate and do all this stuff. And the uh, the child is playing it, playing it cool, very canny and wise. And he sees um, he sees his main chance or his uh, sorry his or her main chance and refuses to discontinue crying. Well, what? Austin is doing. She's she's giving us a glimpse of where these untethered passions come from. People who are grown and who have their passions unregulated are in that condition because they were not taught how to govern their passions when they were little. And Austin is just a she's just a sen I'll just put it this way. Jane Austen is a very sensible woman. Mm-hmm. 